When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to Knife Talk, the podcast out every Monday morning for anybody interested in knives or food or you just want to hear our stupid voices once a week. I'm joined here by Jeff Fader of Fader Knives, Mareko Malmasi of Malmasi Fire Arts, I'm Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives, and we do have a special guest, but we're going to get into that in just a minute. Let's just start with what we've been up to this week. Jeff, how's your week been? Tiring. I'm tired. I'm tired. I went to a, I went to a, a drive-in last night, saw John Belushi double feature, and I'm tired. But uh, I was, it was it was steak knives all, all the time. I'm working on a pile of steak knives, and... It was a lot of fun, and Snap. I'm tired. Fucking tired. Snap. I'm in steak knife heaven this week as well. Shitload of them. Jeez Louise. Uh, are these for restaurants or individuals? No, or individuals. We had, I actually, it's kind of cool. We, we got, I got all this bourbon barrel wood, and I've been stabilizing all this bourbon barrel wood. So we've been kind of like offering that up with like burnt ends, and it's kind of neat. And then um, our friend Ben Snoor. Uh, picked up some, but he had sent me some mesquite from his the ranch that he's on, and I stabilized mm-hmm. the mesquite that he sent me. Man, is it good looking! So I made six with uh, the mesquite from his ranch to send him and his his family. So nice. really, those those are like that mesquite burl is like I'd never thought in my life that mesquite would be that nice. So that's and it smells good too. It's hard as you hell. I'll yeah. tell you what, uh, it's hard as hell, and grinding it is a bitch so it's like i don't i don't know this particular burl i don't know if it's this burl or whatever but it is hard so that's what she said so fine that's <laughs> it what are you doing with the burned ends do you treat them in any way afterwards does, uh, does it go sort of flaky or anything well how, no. how does that work uh, number two is from last week's episode i got some tongue oil at uh and i did what Mareko said and i'm using the tongue oil do a couple coats of tongue oil, a coat of tongue oil leave it alone for for X uh, steel wool, then another coat, let it alone. I really like the tongue oil, mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna do the. I did that on a couple knives. So I usually with the with the burnt, you got to be careful with the with the fire because um, you don't want it to you don't want to burn it too deep because then you don't want to fuck with the um, the epoxy or anything like that. So yeah, I basically go to 800 grit, and then I give it a lick with the torch. And then carefully, you know, careful licks with the torch, and then uh, and then I sand it one more time with the 800, and then I kind of put the oil on or the wax or whatever. Nice. So, nice. Yeah, That's tricky because so. most most epoxies will start letting go around 300 degrees or so. So yeah, yeah you gotta, if you're gonna try that, you gotta be super careful. But super yeah. careful, super quick too, because if you're using brass corbies, the the, the corbies like pick that heat up real quick and then they yeah, let it loose. I've I've had it before. I've had it before where they they start to slip a little bit, but uh, I've got a mm. little system in place where it's pretty good. I got the torch and then I got uh, a little bit of water, a little bit of air. We'll, get mm-hmm. them, we'll keep it cool. Nice. So, what's going nice. on with you guys? 
Morocco, you go first. Go on. Uh, so this last week, uh, uh, Tuesday was my son's birthday. That was fun. We kept it super small just on the actual day. Uh, we went out to my in-laws who I've, I've spoke about it before, but they have this beautiful property uh, about 20 minutes out of town. And, uh, and it's all wooded. It's like almost it's 16 acres or so. And nice. so we just hung out out there, spent time with the grandparents. And then uh, his, actual, uh, his actual birthday party uh, we're actually having today, Sunday, as uh, after nice. we record, we're going to get all set up for that. We're doing it kind of like luau themed. And um, and what else is happening? Oh, this last week I've been working on uh, this Bowie style chef's knife that I got back uh, last week. And um, man, I've just been struggling with the finish. I'm going for So it's Crew Forge V. I've been going for an all blacked out look, which I yesterday I almost nailed. Uh, and it was like my sixth or seventh attempt and I almost nailed perfectly except for one little spot where apparently like the tip of my index finger just barely touched it. Um, but it kept, uh, the acid from doing what it needed to do, um, in kind of like darkening the steel and whatnot. And I didn't notice it before I put it through like the final parts of the, the, the finishing process and so it was kind of I gotta basically go back in and strip it all back off again um, but I, I know what to do exactly now this time so next time around should be go should go really smooth and um, quick and easy but man it's frustrating doing these finishes it's sometimes you nail it on the first time and sometimes you nail it on the twelfth time that's <laughs> how it goes yeah but so can we can it. we play the jingle you, yet? Can we play the hallelujah jingle no. yet? No. Oh, yet. come on, it's all queued up. No, we'll have to wait for that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um my week it, again steak knives uh just like Jeff so a bunch of restaurants um have been ordering steak knives so getting those out the door. Um but the big news for me this week is the the laser finally arrived. Finally. <laughs> yes. So um I wasn't expecting it till I think Friday and it came on Thursday. So this big crate came um, from China. So we're making sure we're disinfecting everything as we're opening it and so on. But I was just like a, a little kid ripping up on the box and um, um, it needed very little sort of putting together. Um, so yeah, we got, we got it going and tested a few blades and then I had to get back to steak knives, unfortunately. So I haven't had much of a chance to play with it other than do some sort of initial tests and uh, to see how it was working. And, very very impressive so we're getting a really deep clean etch um you know you can sort of run your fingernail over it and feel it you know it's not just a a mark across the top um yeah really happy with it and i'm just so excited now because i've downloaded all this this these images and stuff that i'm going to be you know experimenting with so i just need to find that time now so yeah it's all it's all pretty cool yeah i like that one where you put your face on the blade, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. That cracked me up. <laughs> just, just, just to see what would happen with an image. But, um, but what I did find is by changing the the frequency of the laser. So, just like with like a CNC mill, you've got your like your feed rate and you've got your spindle speed. You, it's quite similar with a laser where you've got your your speed of how fast the laser will move. You've got your power, how much power you want to put into the laser. You've also got frequency as well, um, so that changes almost like the color of the, um, of the of the mark that you're making. 
So I've been been looking at almost like like a screen print would do, where you have like multiple screens and each one could be a different color. You know, you do a different pass for each one. I've been looking at different images to do that with. So um, having sort of white markings and darker blacks and so on. I'm hoping I can get some really nice sort of 3D effects on blades as well. So yeah, it's exciting. So I'm hoping to carve some time this week to really play around with that and, and see where we go. It's going to be cool. You didn't take that into the toilet with you, did you? You did. You, you open that in the shop. Do you know how many messages I had with oh people saying that? <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've generally been quite quiet on social media for, you know, with regards to chop um, for, right. for months now, really, because it's just been the same old stuff, just doing the same old stuff. And I, I don't, you know, I don't think people need to see more of it. And I'm really trying to be careful what I put online. So it's, you know, it, it puts me in, in the best light, obviously. And putting out the same stuff all the time isn't really what I'm going to be doing. So I've got I've got big plans of the way that's going to change. Um, but I put, just put up stories about this this laser come in and, you know, a couple of my initial uh, experiments with the laser. And people go in, my phone was like on fire all day. People say, what laser is that? Where'd you get that laser? What laser is that? What model is it? And it's just like, whoa, easy, easy. So I'm going to do, do a video of it um, nice. showing how it works and so on. So hopefully that'll answer a lot of people's questions. But um, it's really cool. It's just lots and lots of potential there. Um, and I've been using it. I, Cut a little bit of brass with it as well to see if it would cut brass for liners, and it will do. So, Whoa. yeah, it's all it's all good, all good. So we do have a special guest today. We've been talking about ourselves for the last sort of fifteen minutes, but we do have a special guest. So let let's just uh, let's just get this done first. Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturers of the finest heat treating ovens available. Find your next oven at evenheat-kiln.com. To the chapel! And I think, talking about even heats then, I think it's it's a bit of a clue to who we got on today. Because, you know, if people are going deep into steel and they're going to need a heat treat oven and so on, um, they're going to need that, that. But they're also going to need a book. A book, and I know Jeff has received this book this week. Do you, want, do you want to give us a bit of an introduction, Jeff? Well, I thought you were going to introduce Spence from Evenheat for a second there, but uh, our guest is... Uh, One day. Yeah. <laughs> our guest is... And he had to listen to us talking about the toilet, which is embarrassing, too. Our guest today is Dr. Laren Thomas, a.k.a. Knife Steel Nerds on Instagram. Dr. Thomas wrote an incredible book called Knife Engineering, Steel, Heat Treating, and Geometry. I received it last week, and I'm stunned by it. It's the number one book in metallurgy on Amazon, and we are lucky to have Dr. Larry Thomas. Dr. Thomas, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. I'm a big fan. Whoa, look at you. Thank you so much. You're, 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 you are, you are, a, when we announced that you were coming, well, we talked about you last week and then all of a sudden, you know, an hour after it was posted, Greg says he's on next week. So we thank you so much for coming on. And, um, this is a real, we, you, you're, 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 uh, when we announced you're coming on, the questions came flying in. Everyone's fired mm. up. Yeah. And my Instagram this week is my feed has just been full of people having your book. Your book has been arriving and people taking photos and so on. So I'm really glad that seems to be going really, really well for you too. Yeah, the book is selling great. Everybody's saying really nice things about it from new knife makers to old veterans. You know, uh, the reaction's been amazing. Hmm. And, you know, you're the second doctor we've had on the show. We had Dr. Professor Chris as well. 
Um, and I can confirm everybody who's listening, Laren is clothed today. Not, <laughs> uh, like, not like previous no, doctors we've no, had on. Don't say it. Don't say it. Come yeah, on, I've man. got my lab coat on. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot better than Perfect. our last doctor. Last doctor, he had his titties out and he was drinking a fucking McDonald's shake. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> Not kidding. Unbelievable. So, so let's take things seriously. And as you'd imagine, we're going to be going pretty deep this week. Let's take a deep dive. So, Laren, tell us, for those who don't know about your book, give us the introduction to your book, what, what it's all about. Uh, well, I am a metallurgist. Uh, I, uh, the reason why I became a metallurgist is because of my dad. So my dad is Devin Thomas. He's known for making Damascus uh, kitchen knives. Um, so he, he you know, has been into knives since well before I was born. Uh, he had a, a, a Damascus business selling direct-to-knife makers uh, as far back as I can remember. And so that was always around. You know, my dad, uh, his shop was in our backyard from the time I was eight years old onward. So, uh, you know, the smell of steel dust was often in the air. You know, the neighborhood knew about us because the power hammer is always going in the backyard. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And so, you know, knives were just something I was exposed to from the beginning, Uh, almost to the point where I wasn't that interested in it, really. by the time I was a teenager, my dad started taking me to some knife shows, uh, like the Vegas show, uh, the Eugene show. And uh, there, I really got a lot more interested in knives. Uh, just these knife makers with their sales pitches were really fascinating to me. You know, like, oh, my knife can cut, uh, you know, a thousand times on a one-inch piece <laughs> of rope because of my super heat treatment or my secret steel uh, you know, that kind of stuff all intrigued me. And so I started asking my dad a million questions. Uh, and he was always into steel. I mean, he, he kind of needed to be uh, with developing methods for making stainless Damascus and uh, troubleshooting people's heat treating issues all the time with the Damascus that he's selling them. And uh, so, you know, he had read some books. He had he'd talked to people at various hammer ends and things. And so he was into it and he could answer all my questions. And that really, really built my interest. Uh, so eventually I, I went on to get my degree in, in metallurgy. And now I'm a steel metallurgist. So I, I started writing articles on, on my website, knifesteelnerds.com. Uh, then people kept asking me for a book. And I'm like, I, I keep giving away articles for free on my website. I don't know what you want a book for. Uh, but, uh, you know, the more I thought about it, you know, a book is just a different uh, medium than a website. Uh, you know, even for me, when I try to read articles online, I just end up skimming. And, like, I can't, you can't read a book length worth of information yeah. on a screen. At least I can't. Uh, and so the book gives me a chance to really, like, put it all in one place and kind of have a flow of information building on things. Uh, where the website is just one-off articles where I've got a thousand links to other things. You know, like everything I describe, it's like, oh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read this. And just nobody's going to click on 30 different links. So mm-hmm. I, I think the book has turned out really well and people seem to be enjoying it. I, I really like book... those articles. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I do pop around to all the different links and then come back. And so some people you, do. 
You might be the only one, Mareko. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think a book is a, is a good sort of handy resource just to have there, and you can just pick it up, find what you need, and you're done. Whereas there's less dis- you know there's less distraction in that than opening up a laptop and going to the website and getting all the notifications come flying at you, or saying, "No, come look at me, come look at me." I, I think I think particularly a technical book. I think there's always going to be a huge value in that. Yeah, it's helpful for me, too, because we've done a bunch of experiments on toughness testing, edge retention testing, that kind of stuff. And mm. so I, I can open up my book and flip to what I couldn't remember, which is most things. <laughs> Here's what I'll say about your book that it was, you know, I'm, I'm a third of the way through. And, and it's been at first I was very concerned because I flipped through and there's like these charts and I'm not really <clears throat> a lot of knife makers, too. Or, you know, maybe they weren't the best in school. And this is something some way in which to kind of express themselves. And science might not be their first foray into, you know, you know, interest to this stuff. I was impressed at how you organized everything very, very uh, um, accessible, but also it's approachable. Uh, the way you write, the way, it seems as though you're very conscious of, you know, young people who are maybe not the most scientifically oriented. And then at the end of each chapter, you do a summary of like the bullet points of what you what you take away, the takeaway. And I just felt like it was very, very approachable for people who are into science and then people who are just want to kind of get the, the gist of it. So I was really, really it's different than a website because like, you know, it is a resource, but you were very conscious of, you know, your audience. Cause it's, you know, I, I was very impressed with how you handled, um, talk to the, basically talking to the reader. Oh, thanks Jeff. I mean, that's what I'm going for. I mean, I, I've experienced it all. You know, I went through over eight years of school to get a PhD and my very smartest professors, the ones who knew everything could do anything, sometimes were the most difficult to understand. As you right. go through a lecture and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I, I can tell you definitely know what you're talking about, but I don't know. Uh, and, and when you have a textbook, like you'll, you'll try to read through it and you're like, I, I, I'm not getting this. And, but sometimes you have a really good professor, you show up to class and he or she explains it and you're like, wow, like this is all, all very understandable. I don't know why this textbook was so dense and, impossible to understand Hmm. and so my number one goal with my website and my book is always just to put it in the simplest terms that i can and uh the the worst criticism i ever get is that you know i didn't understand this and uh, it drives me to make it simpler the next time uh you know but I, i can only do my best you know sometimes it gets complex i try to break it down and uh, you know, one thing at a time. But, you know, when you're just throwing information at people, it can get crazy. So like you said, a clear structure where I'm I'm going subject by subject, making sure you get the last thing before I move on to the next thing. You know, hopefully it works out for most people that want to learn. That's a huge takeaway that this is an incredibly approachable book. And, and I was, that's the first thing I thought of, because especially in the beginning when you're writing about it, you're just like, I'm going to, we're going to get this, we're going to get this team thing together. And I could tell that you were very conscious of the reader. And that was really, really, I thought that was a exceptional, exceptional point. Well, that's an awesome compliment. Well, true. <laughs> well, look, before we go any further and we, we want to learn so much more about you and we've got a million and one questions too, where can people buy the book? Uh, it's available on Amazon. So uh, Amazon USA. What about, those, what about those Australians? Well, well, the 
Australians have been a real, real kerfuffle. Uh, I, I knew going in that I had plenty of Australian readers, so I was trying to make sure it'd be available in Australia. Everything I was saying said it would be. Uh, then I released the book, and uh, all of my Australian readers are saying they're not able to order it. So I, I tried to get a different publisher, and then they chopped off the back half of the book, and it was available with missing like 150 pages what? Uh, for, oh, for a geez, week or so. Geez. And so, you know, I'm calling customer service and emailing customer service, uh, you know, getting very little. I think it's not available like that anymore, uh, but Australians apparently can order from Amazon USA now. So I don't know what the holdup was before, but if you're in Australia, I'm pretty sure you can order it. People are telling me that, that their orders are going through. Uh, I, I don't know if any have actually gotten there yet, but the orders are going through and Amazon is accepting them. So I think you can get it most anywhere now. There you go. Cool. Cool. So it's a quick search on Amazon and they'll be able to find it. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, having listened to Knife Talk Down Under, as long as there's pictures, they'll be happy. That was a shot at Corin right there. That was a shot at Corin. Oh, my God. Don't do Only it. Kidding. <laughs> Only He's kidding. He's not kidding, Corin. He's not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the book's got hundreds of pictures in it. Uh, you know, I think it's a lot easier to learn things with pictures than than with just words. Uh, so, you know, the charts can look scary, like Jeff said, but the only thing scarier than a chart would be trying to explain it for ten pages. So, it's yeah. a it's an extraordinary resource. I'm and, and the funny thing is, is you know, when I was reading this book, all I could think of is, well, we don't have to do this podcast anymore. Just buy the book, and you know, all your questions are answered. <laughs> you can actually kind of go through. What's annealing and what's normalizing and heat treatment and why is what's you know talk about the austenite to martensite? It was it was very compact and very easy to kind of go through. So, like a lot of questions are answered. I have a couple questions that we'll get to when we get to the questions, but I'm I'm amazed at how good of a resource this is. This is this is a book that everyone, if you're making knives or you're interested in knives, this is the number one book that you should have. And then you can stop asking us questions. We can just cook all the time. This is change the name of the podcast, a shovel talk or something. Fork cook talk. talk. Some. Yeah. So I'm sure we're going to come back to the book, um, but I want to know more about you, Larin. So you've got a PhD in, in metallurgy, mm -hmm. um, and, and you work commercially as a metallurgist. What, what does that entail? Who, who do you work with? Yeah, I work for U.S. Steel Research uh, in Pittsburgh. And uh, I work primarily on developing sheet steel for cars. Uh, so there's a structure of the car called the body in white is primarily what I design steel for. Those are all like the structural uh, elements of the car. And uh, there's a lot of competition both among steel companies and to ward off alternate materials like aluminum, for example. Hmm. And uh, so, so there's a real push right now for new steels all the time in cars. They want them to be stronger uh, but just as ductile or more so, meaning you can form it in a more complex shapes while it's also stronger. Uh, and they also want it to weld the same as the old material. So it's a lot a lot of challenges, uh, but it's really fun and exciting. You know, our company is is building new heat treating lines and stuff. Uh, and the customers keep asking for the next step up. Uh, in, you know, there's a lot of, lot of things getting in the way of trying to make better steel. Like, you know, they don't want more of this. They don't want more of that. This makes it weld worse. Uh, so from an engineering standpoint, it's really fun uh, working in car steel. Uh, but, you know, as much fun as I was having, I also wanted to do knife steel. 
I have a stupid mm. question. I apologize, but this is interesting to me in terms of car steel. When you make car parts, how do they heat treat the parts? Like if I'm thinking of like the fender or the side of the side of the car over the wheel, do they heat treat those parts? Uh, well, there's two major methods. Uh, but what U.S. Steel makes is we we produce the steel and heat treat it before sending it to the car company. Uh, so they don't order a composition; they order a set of properties. So you know it needs this strength minimum, but it can't be over this strength level. It has to have this. Uh, formability minimum you know that kind of stuff and then we send it through our heat treating lines to give it those exact uh properties and then we ship them the coil and then they put it in the forming die and they press it into a part okay so it's all wow. pressed after it's heat treated yeah now there isn't an, another method uh called press hardened steel uh where they will they'll form it and then heat treat the part uh, but U.S. Steel doesn't make very much of that, so I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting because when I started getting involved with a little bit of cryo and I was getting mm -hmm. some liquid nitrogen, the guys at the welding supply store that were, you know, they had really didn't have, and I didn't know that what I was doing, and they were talking about how there's so many parts in race cars that are that they use cryo for like all these like even like the small guys who are making their own parts for their race cars they're constantly using liquid nitrogen there is this incredible connection between um, the car manufacturing and knife makers yeah when when i go to the welding supply store and get cryo they're always just worried that i'm going to have semen in my doer that seems to be their main concern what uh, <laughs> wait wait <laughs> Stop. Stop yeah. and explain, now please. Now we have a podcast. What are you, are you known for this? Craig, is this something you've Craig, done in are the you past? Marking, are you marking that? that is the, is that going to be the title of this podcast? That's the title. <laughs> in my doer. Yeah. <laughs> Why would they think that you're jerking off into your doer, sir? Doctor. Again. Again. <laughs> well, I've never had semen in my doer, but... Uh, <laughs> of course. You never know. <laughs> That's what you said. Liquid nitrogen, though, is very commonly purchased by farmers. Uh, for... And they're known for it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Welsh farmers. <laughs> so they take samples from their livestock and then they they keep them cool uh, in liquid nitrogen. Uh, so apparently this is a real problem for my welding supply store. Um, but ah. yeah, so uh, at U.S. Steel we don't use liquid nitrogen. That'd be highly expensive. Uh, I don't know all what they use it for in like high-end race cars. Uh, it could be that that some of it is kind of pseudoscience. There's a really big cryo industry out there that are promoting it for lots of things that it doesn't actually have an effect on. Uh, so I don't know all what they use it for, but certainly in knives, uh, there are things we can use cryo for. Well, pseudoscience is, you know, half of knife making is pseudoscience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, not, I mean, not from your end, but I mean, like, I, we've heard it all. Yeah, you and know? hopefully we can combat some of that with the book. Because, uh, you know, part of it builds out of just people misunderstanding what happens during heat treating. And so when you know what's going on in the steel, certain things just won't make sense. If someone says they're jumping up and down uh, during the quench, you're like, well, what is that? What is that going to do? You know? Hmm. Or facing due north, we've heard that. Yeah, Josh exactly, Scott likes. Yeah. Josh Scott says he faces due north when he when he quenches. Yeah, I still can't tell if <laughs> anyone really? seriously says that or if it's just a running joke. Not Josh. He's he's he, he, he writes. <laughs> Josh, Josh is the running joke. He's yeah. he's very he's very serious when he he very serious. 
So so let's get to some questions. We've had a million and one questions. So let's get some to some listener questions. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? All right, this is part of the show where we uh, we try to answer your questions. And, and we our Jeff put out, I think, uh, the call for questions for Laren. And we got a ton of heat treat questions. We're starting out strong with Mr. Will Morris from Down Under. Uh, he says, hey, guys. Have, uh, having recently started working with stainless, I've had to start looking into the colder side of the heat treatment. Anything Laren has to say about Sub-Zero treatment would be much appreciated. Love, Will. That was on page 358. You'll never know that one. And, and, yeah, P.S. Will, Will. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was the part that was taken out. The part, the funny part about Will is Will is an incredible knife maker, one of the incredible. And his, his original, he originally uh, sent the message to, hey, pig fuckers and Laren. So I had to change it to, hey, guys. And I decided I'd just swing it back there. <laughs> So what do you know? What's so, so answer the question? Thanks, <laughs> thanks for clarifying. Yeah, I just you know he started in with the semen and the I mean it just seemed like it made a lot of sense. I mean that's maybe the reason why they're worried about the doers. Uh, now I will start out by saying that it could be that I don't know the answer to some of these questions. Uh, this one is an easy one, but I uh, I don't know everything even after the PhD. So, you know more than us. That's yeah. all right. Dude, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Don't worry. We'll slide right. We'll slip and slide right past the ones you don't know. You'll never even feel a thing. All right. So we'll start out with the very basics. Uh, when you heat treat the steel doing the final hardening step, you're heating it up really hot uh, so that it transforms to austenite. Uh, and, of course, when it transforms to austenite, you know it because it's now non-magnetic. Uh, so you know, every knife maker is familiar with, with heat treating to austenite prior to quenching. Uh, then you quench rapidly, and it hardens the blade. And the way that it hardens it is you're forming a phase called martensite. Uh, martensite is, is a very strong phase. It's the strongest phase in steel other than carbides. Uh, and so when you transform to martensite, sometimes you have austenite that does not transform. Uh, and this is called retained austenite. And it's a lot softer than the martensite. And so if you if you do what's called over austenitize your blade, uh, you may get a, a significant amount of retained austenite, which can reduce the overall hardness. And uh, what happens is the martensite formation temperatures end up below room temperature so that the transformation doesn't complete. And so if you can go colder than room temperature, you can get that transformation uh, to proceed uh, closer to completion. And the colder you get, uh, the more complete the transformation will be. And you'll get a little bit more hardness. And you don't want excessive retained austenite. That'll make your blade worse. It'll be more prone to rolling. Uh, it won't be as strong. And, yeah, you, you don't want extra retained austenite. And so yeah. uh, some people have said in the past, like, oh, you can't use a freezer. That's not cold enough. You need at least dry ice or liquid nitrogen. Uh, that's not exactly true. Uh, the colder you go, the more complete that transformation will be. Uh, but you need to go into into your cold media, like your freezer or your, your dry ice or liquid nitrogen, as quickly as you can, uh, because the retained austenite will stabilize even at room temperature. And so if you wait an hour or more before going into the freezer, it's not going to do anything or very little. Um, liquid nitrogen is a little bit uh, better in that it can stabilize a little bit more and still transform most of the way. Uh, so liquid nitrogen is a little bit more foolproof, though dry ice will do most of what liquid nitrogen will. 
So you want to go into cryo right after heat treatment, not after temper. Yeah, and even in in steel data sheets and things, it'll say, you know, we recommend doing a temper first before cryo. I do not recommend doing that because the the temper will make the cryo much less effective. The reason why the steel companies recommend that is because it leads to less cracking. So if you temper it first, then it's much less prone to warping and cracking. But that's because the cryo is also doing less. Uh, So uh, go straight into cryo. Uh, I've never had anything crack in any of my heat treating. I've talked to lots of knife makers who do a lot of cryo that haven't had anything crack, with the possible exception of San Mai Steel. Uh, San Mai Steel can create a lot of issues because with the multiple materials... Uh, they they grow and shrink at different rates, and so if your if your outside layers are growing while your core is shrinking, uh, it can split itself apart, and so cryo can be a little bit scary with San Mai stuff. I have a, another question about cryo. Is is you know, is it similar to when you're uh, bringing your steel up to that you need to soak it? Do you need to soak it for a long time in cryo? Is time an an issue or? Uh. It doesn't need to soak for a long time. It, it just needs to get down to temperature. So martensite transforms almost instantaneously. It's primarily controlled by temperature. So the colder you go, the more martensite that will form. Once it forms, it happens very rapidly. Uh, but there is a, a host of, of scientific journal articles out there where they looked at the effect of soak time and claimed that they, they measured a difference. Uh, but I think they're wrong. Uh, because of of their their you. data that they presented, I, I've analyzed it. Doesn't look right to me. Uh, I also did an edge retention experiment comparing uh, a famous paper that did a long soak time. I could not see a difference. Um. So, do you have? I mean, I would guess that. Uh, I sorry, I'm struggling right now. <laughs> Still looking up. Uh, so. I always assumed that it would be too stressful on a material to go from quenching uh, straight into uh, sub-zero treatment. And I've always done just even just like a, a snap temper of like 30 minutes at 350 or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. you, do you even suggest that or or just go straight to the sub-zero? And if so, go straight to the sub-zero. Do you have kind of a, a progression that you would follow? Because I would imagine you don't want to go from even like 100 degrees down to the sub-zero temperatures well any transformation is stressful i mean quenching in in oil or water is very stressful on a blade sure uh and going into cryo is as well uh but the this even a snap temper even sitting at room temperature for 30 minutes uh stabilizes some osinite and makes the cryo less effective and uh interesting i've never i've never had anything crack i'm sure people have uh but Give it a try. If you start to get some warping, then you know we can discuss some some different mitigation strategies. But I right. think don't be scared and give it a try. You also yeah. said something about over austenitizing. When does that occur? Mm-hmm. Is that from holding it too long at the high temperature, or or is it going beyond the austenitizing temperature? How do how does over austenitizing typically happen? Yeah, it's not normally holding too long. Like things stabilize after like 15 minutes or so, and then it doesn't change that much after usually. Okay. So it's it's generally too high a temperature. So your data sheet okay. says 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, and you use 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, the problem that occurs is at your austenitizing temperature, you're dissolving carbide, and you're putting carbon and chromium and manganese into the solution in austenite. 
and the all those elements in the austenite affects the martensite transformation temperatures that, that we were talking about, uh, especially carbon. So you're heating it up hotter, getting more and more carbon in the austenite. Those martensite transformation temperatures are going lower and lower. Uh, and they can be too low where it won't even harden. Like you can get a non-magnetic blade at the end. Wow. I, Interesting. On to this, this actually fits right into one of my questions, was a lot of people wonder about soak times. How does, when you're bringing your steel up to temperature to get to austenite, especially when you, a lot of guys are going to be switching into stainless steel where you're, you're holding, uh, your soak times are longer at different temperatures. What does the soak time actually do? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a few different things. Uh, the one most obvious is just that it has to heat all the way through. And uh, so the thicker your piece of steel is, the more you need to add on to that soak time to make sure that, that the whole piece has reached the target temperature. Uh, the other thing you're doing is letting the carbides dissolve. So I've, I've got some info in the book on this also. Uh, on 52100, it's got a time versus like carbon and solution plot. So your, your carbide is dissolving and you're putting enough carbon and alloy in solution to make sure that it's ready for quenching. So you need enough carbon to hit your target hardness uh, and you need enough alloy also because that alloy will give your steel certain properties. If it's a stainless, you need more chromium in solution for your final corrosion resistance. Uh, but even for a low alloy steel, uh, you need to dissolve some carbide to put manganese and chromium in solution so that it has hardenability. Uh, you know, some people don't austenitize high enough and they can have issues with getting full hardness on quenching uh, just because there's not enough manganese and chromium in solution because uh, those alloys will suppress the transformations you don't want, like perlite and carbide. You know, if you normalize air cool, you form those soft phases. We're trying to avoid them now that we're quenching to get hard martensite. And those alloys will suppress those transformations. Look at you. Nice. <laughs> whilst we whilst Will's question was on about um, sub zero, um, mm -hmm. I've got a question asked, and this may well be a really really dumb question. <laughs> That's what um, we're going to be saying the whole time. <laughs> we're going to be saying yeah, this. Yeah, we you don't have to apologize to me. Let's just let's just I, start with saying all of our questions. Well, with some, most of them might be dumb. Fine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I've done very little cryo, um, mm -hmm. but I do do sub zero treatments on on any of the stainless that I do because I predominantly use Sandvik steels, and I've spoken to them, and they told me about the benefits of Sub-Zero, which is around about minus five, which is like a home freezer, really. They said there's, there's huge benefits of using that. Um, I said, very little experience with cryo, but I mean, if we're using cryo or even a Sub-Zero treatment to, to get that little bit of extra hardness, again, I'm sure this is a dumb question. <laughs> so when before, <laughs> before we temper, we temper to bring the hardness down a little bit and to make our, our knives less brittle. Mm -hmm. couldn't we just temper less and we wouldn't need the subs what, what's the difference if 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 we're tempering to bring down the hardness why 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 not temper just a little bit less so we we keep that extra maybe two points of hardness what's the difference between that and something that's gone through a a cryo treatment to get that extra two Two yeah, points, that, that's maybe, a, a really good question. Uh, you know, one issue you can is it really look at you, <laughs> look at you, uh, look at a you. Very, very nice intelligent job. PhD level question for sure. God damn it, Craig Lockwood, <laughs> Doctor Lockwood, please <laughs> forget it, Doctor Schmuck. Go ahead. Uh, so it does depend on your austenitizing temperature. If your austenitizing temperature is low enough, then your retained austenite won't be excessive. 
uh, but you might be under tempering. You know, you're not tempering enough for good toughness. Uh, where if you're tempering sufficiently along with cryo, then you know it'll have have pretty decent toughness along with a little bit extra hardness. So that's one concern. Is just you might be under tempering to get the same hardness. Uh, the other is that retained austenite, that phase that's making you a little bit softer. Uh, has its own properties and affects the properties of your knife. Uh, so it's a soft phase. And so uh, I, I need a good way of explaining this, but you have two different measurements of strength. One is yield strength and one is ultimate strength. And a hardness value correlates mostly with ultimate strength, which is how how much stress the steel can handle before it breaks. Uh, but there's also a yield strength, which is how much stress the steel can handle before it's, it bends permanently. And your retained austenite will reduce your yield strength, uh, even if your ultimate strength or hardness is the same. So your steel may be easier to bend even at the same hardness. Also, under stress, retained austenite can transform to martensite. Uh, so, you know, we are, we're cooling it down really low temperature to try to get it to transform to martensite, but that can also happen under stress. So, you know, someone is bending your knife or the edge is, is deforming while it's being used, and then that retained austenite is transforming to martensite from the induced stress. And then you have untempered martensite, uh, which is very brittle and easy to start fracture. So your retained austenite can make something easier to bend and stay bent at the same hardness, and it can also transform to brittle martensite and lead to chipping. So bending and chipping, which are both two things you do not want. Quick question mm. on that: Is that mm -hmm. what work hardness is? Like when you when you when you hit something hard and it work hardens something, is that similar? Uh, it is similar in some ways. So you know the. The most common time you see work hardening, well, I guess there's a lot of common times, but so you can cold work steel, you know, you can be hammering it at room temperature or relatively cold anyway. Uh, you know, you can take a paper clip and bend it back and forth. It gets stronger until it breaks. Uh, that's all work hardening. Now, one thing that can happen during work hardening is uh, retained austenite transformation, which is not required for work hardening, but it will change the behavior of the work hardening. It will work harden more with retained austenite in there because that austenite will be transforming to hard martensite. So it'll be work hardening at a more rapid rate than it would be from, without retained austenite. From the stress. Right, right. There you go. All right, Will, we answered your question. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> okay, we've got another one from Vince Ton. He says, hey, with an exclamation mark, why don't kitchen knives use the same super steels like Elmax or carpenter steel when folding knives do so often? Mm. Yeah, that, that that's a good one. And if I didn't know about knife steel, if I was a generic metallurgist who didn't know about knife steel, I would not be able to answer. But luckily, I am a knife Look steel metallurgist. That's why you're the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's a few reasons why, why a lot of kitchen knives don't have uh, those so-called super steels in them, or we'll just call it expensive powder metallurgy stainless steels or non-stainless steels. Uh, one is that kitchen knives are big. So, you know, a folder has like a little three-inch blade on it or something. Uh, a kitchen knife could have 9, 10, 12-inch blade on it. And uh, that's a lot of steel. And knife makers can be very price conscious, uh, you know, when they're putting $100 worth of high-end steel into a blade. Uh, so that's reason number one. Reason number two is hand finishing. Again, you've got a really huge knife, and uh, if you're going to finish all of that knife, either by hand or even with a, a grinder, 
uh, a higher vanadium steel, which a lot of these powder metallurgy steels have higher vanadium that's hard to finish, uh, then you've got a lot of pain ahead of you, and knife makers don't like to do that. So knife makers, uh, you guys are cheap and lazy. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> this, true. Is, this is true. So those are two major reasons. Another is is tradition. So uh, people that are used to buying kitchen knives, they're used to seeing things, uh, Japanese steels like VG10, White Number 1, Blue Super, uh, or in the U.S., maybe something like 440C, or more recently, ABL is very common, uh, in part because it's cheap uh, and easy to finish. Uh, so the knife makers don't want to use it uh, because it's expensive and difficult to finish. Uh, and and the buyers are not used to seeing it either, and so they're not necessarily looking for those steals in the knife. Good answer. Good answer right there. Cheap and lazy, he hits you all on the... I hope you're all listening and saying, <laughs> you're, he is right. I happen to be both. I have a quick follow-up. So uh, I imagine, uh, you know, a lot of people see these kind of boutique steals, on uh, all the fancy alloying in them and they equate that to quality and performance uh, i know you've done a lot of cotra testing and have you and I, I think you've done some comparisons have you noticed a huge difference in performance between some of the boutique steels and kind of the more uh, kind of mainstream steels that a lot of makers use that's a good question right there well, one thing we want to avoid is talking about steels in terms of, like, bad, good, best. Sure. Uh, be because the properties just don't work that way. And I see this a lot if you type in just, like, steel ranking, knife steel ranking. You'll see nice. steels ranked, like, from budget to premium, and they rank them almost entirely by wear resistance. And I think that's a mistake because there's a whole host of properties that we're looking at. Uh, two of the big ones are toughness and edge retention, and it's very difficult to get both of those at the same time. Uh, so many powder metallurgy steels, especially the stainless ones, they have very high edge retention and wear resistance, higher than than simpler steels like 52100 or 1095 for sure, You know, probably more than double. Uh, but their toughness is also reduced. Um, there, there are certain powder metallurgy steels, especially the non-stainless ones like CPM Crewwear, CPM 3V, CPM 4V, CPM M4, uh, where they attain really good levels of toughness and edge retention together. And uh, it would be tough to match that with, with simpler steels. Uh, just they're, they're very well designed along with that powder metallurgy technology uh, that gives them a really good combination of properties that's tough to beat. Um, now they're more difficult to forge and, and finish, but they do have mm -hmm. excellent properties. So what would be your five, just say, you know, I'm putting you on the spot here, but give us five steels that you think fit that, fit the confines of what you're looking for. Yeah, so in my book, I've got a, a table of, of steel recommendations. They're broken down into multiple What's categories. What's the name of that book, so, by the way? The book is Knife Engineering, Steel Heat Treating and Geometry. There you go. <laughs> so uh, I've got a table of, of steel recommendations in there. Uh, there's a bunch of categories. So one is low alloy steels. Those are primarily steels for forging. You can, of course, use high alloy steels in forging, but uh, bladesmiths don't like to use them uh, because of the, the higher difficulty in using them. Lazy so and cheap. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I have uh, non-stainless high alloy steels, uh, like the, the CPM Crewware and, and 10V and those kind of steels. Then stainless steels and super stainless steels. So the, the super stainless includes steels like Vanex or LC200N. Those are really high corrosion-resistant steels. Uh, they also have great properties, but uh, they're more difficult to heat treat, which is why I break them out in a different category. 
And uh, then I have recommendations for a, a high toughness steel, a high wear resistant steel, and then a balanced steel. Uh, so so for low alloy forging grades, the high toughness deal would be 8670 or 5160. Uh, balanced would be 5200. And uh, high wear resistance would be like a, a, a crew forge V or a higher tungsten steel like uh, 1.2519 or 1.2562. Those, those European designations are really hard to remember because they're just four seemingly random numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. So sure. those those would be low alloy steels. High alloy would be uh, Z tough or CD one is a high toughness steel. Uh, balance properties would be CPM crew wear or CPM four V. High wear resistance would be a CPM ten V. Uh, this is exactly why people need the book <laughs> yeah. for the reference. This is nobody's going to remember any of this, but this is perfect. I love it. But basically, it sounds. I feel like what I'm getting from what you're saying is like, based on you, you should select your steel based on how you plan on or the i guess the work that it's going to be designed to do not necessarily because of the fancy alloying or, or or whatever is like trending in what people really like right yeah well it depends on if you're, you're you're engineering a knife for high performance or you're just trying to market it to people you think that will buy it you know if the hot steel is m390 Maybe you'll sell more knives than M390. I don't know. But from an engineering sure. perspective, you know, you should select based on certain performance criteria that you're shooting for. Uh, and you know, some people will use steels that are not well suited for what, what they want. Uh, it's not that it can't work or won't work, but if you're shooting for a certain set of properties, you should pick the steel that's going to get you closest to that rather than fighting something mm. that isn't really designed for it. Sure. There you go. Hmm. And how does that work on a, on a commercial s- scale like with your, your regular day job? Would you get somebody saying maybe want some more toughness so you'll put, you know, sprinkle in a bit of vanadium? How, how does that work? Is it just like a big recipe? Yeah, well, tool steel design and, and knife steel design is complex, of course. Uh, but one of the, the major microstructure components that we are controlling for is carbide. So more carbide makes your steel more wear resistant and less tough. Uh, less carbide makes it tougher but less wear resistant. And then different carbide types also affect the properties differently. So a vanadium carbide will contribute more to wear resistance for a given amount of carbide, which is why those high vanadium steels are so wear resistant. Uh, so, and then powder metallurgy is designed to make the carbides finer for your given amount of carbide. And and again, that's very helpful with vanadium carbides because vanadium carbides tend to become very large with conventional steel processing. Uh, so uh, if you want vanadium carbides in steel, the best way of handling that is with powder metallurgy because it'll keep those carbides fine. Uh, the powder metallurgy doesn't have limitless power. Uh, you know, the overall volume of carbide, the amount of carbide will affect the properties even when you're keeping them pretty small. So, you know, a CPM 15V with 15% vanadium and a whole bunch of carbide, even though they're pretty small oh, from powder metallurgy, the steel is still not very tough. So, uh, that's a, a 101 on, on steel design, obviously. I didn't hmm. go in much depth, but those are the basics. Get the book. Get the book. <laughs> Get the book. Exactly. Exactly. We've got another one from um, Leon, oh no, Emile Deschamps. Um, hey guys, I'd like to know what Lauren's thoughts about cold forging are. Benefits versus the risk of damaging the blade. 
Yeah, cold forging is not that common among knife makers. Probably the best known maker who promotes it would be Murray Carter, who's known for making uh, Japanese-style knives. He apprenticed in Japan. Uh, and, and they do cold forging uh, for a few different reasons. Uh, but some of this is lost. You know, they, they do it over generations in Japan, and, and the current master has his reasons why he's saying it happens. Uh, but that may not even be why it started out originally. So it, we don't always know. But it, it does seem like a major reason why Murray Carter and, and some Japanese bladesmiths will do it is just to get closer to final shape. You know, when the steel is hot, uh, it moves around a little bit too easily. And when you're getting near the end, you can get a better finish on, on the blade and, and get down to your final dimensions a little more carefully with cold forging. Uh, but one thing that helps him is that he primarily uses laminated steel. Uh, so, you know, soft steel or iron on the sides of the the tool steel that's being used for the cutting edge. Uh, tool steels in general have pretty poor ductility, especially when cold. Uh, so a lot of steels will start cracking after about 10% uh, deformation. So you need to be very careful. Uh, oh, wow. Metallurgically, it can make a difference to your final properties, uh, Cold forging can make your final grain size a little bit finer um, because you're you're kind of pancaking all of your your grain structure in there, and it's going to reform its grains as it heats up, which leads to a little bit finer structure. Uh, there are other ways of keeping your grain size fine, so it, it it's not like a, a a super process where you're going from garbage steel to super awesome performance. Uh, so it's definitely not required. So if you're going to do cold forging, you need to be very careful. You need to put in some practice. I think Murray Carter himself recommends, like, you know, intentionally crack some blades so that you can see how much it can take before before it starts to, to break. Sure. Uh, so I would recommend the same thing if you're going to try it. But you're so, – so cold oh. – for, sorry. Cold forging is no, cold from start to finish? Uh, yeah. So cold just means, means it, what is the definition of cold forging? So it's not, it's not austenite usually. Uh, most common cold forging is just room temperature. So if we give a simple explanation, we'll say room temperature forging. Uh, and so you can reheat it later, um, and then cool it back down and cold forge it some more. But it, cold forging is, is basically room temperature forging. Hmm. Hmm. I always was told cold forging was kind of like a subcritical like or not subcritical but, but like below 1500 or or 1400 degrees is kind of like the definitely like the colder side of things yeah giving a cutoff is somewhat challenging you know yeah sure it, if this question is about warm forging that is uh, a different question warm forging would be something like you know forging from 1600 or maybe 1500 or something uh, where where your end goal is to keep grain growth uh, as minimal as possible while you're forging, mm -hmm. that's your goal of warm warm for forging. But it's a little bit different than than cold forging because you're at a higher temperature where that steel, all of the elements inside, can move around a little bit more rapidly, and the steel is much more sure. ductile than at room temperature. And you hear makers talk about quote unquote edge packing, but it sounds like what is actually happening is as you hit that that hit the steel um you what you're reforming the crystalline structure it's not actually 
I don't know, packing with, uh, you know, packing the edge with, I don't know, carbon or whatever. I can't remember, you know, some of those things that people would say, but I, I just, I remember hearing about pe- edge packing a long time ago by, by forging kind of on the cooler side of the range. And, but it sounds like I said, it sounds like what you're saying is that it, it's actually the crystals, uh, reforming in the steel and not, not and not actually edge packing. Yeah. So- yeah, edge packing is an old myth. Uh, usually they describe it in terms of increasing the density of the steel, uh, you know, like you're packing it down tighter. Uh, but that's not how steel works during forging. Like the volume stays the same when you forge. If anything, the density slightly decreases by a very tiny amount as you forge it because uh, you're creating little tiny defects in the steel. Uh, the defects aren't aren't bad. Oh, defects is a metallurgy term, not one that is friendly to the general person. Uh, but you're not making microscopic cracks, but you are inducing uh, microscopic defects into the steel. And when you anneal steel to make it soft, uh, you're eliminating those those defects and making the steel softer. But the density is not increasing during the so-called edge packing myth. Interesting. The next question comes from Leonard Leonard Oley. A question for Laren. What are the advantages and disadvantages of heat treating using molten salts as opposed to a kiln? Okay, that, that's a good one. There, there's two major ways molten salts are used. One is in the high temperature range and one is in the low temperature range. Uh, so I'll try to go over both. Uh the high temperature range is usually for austenitizing. So you're you're heating up to your 1500 degrees or, or something for 5200 or maybe 1950 for a stainless steel. Uh, that's in Fahrenheit. Uh, and, and the molten salts are good in a couple ways. One is that the heat transfer is really rapid. So, you know, it's a liquid against the steel. So it's it's transferring heat a lot quicker than in in air in your conventional furnace. So you can use a little bit shorter soak times and and perhaps get a little bit finer grain size. And uh, it also has no no atmosphere. So you don't need to use any foil or no-scale coatings because there's no atmosphere in the molten salts. Uh, So that can be convenient for certain people. Uh, Molten salts can also be dangerous if you get uh, a lot of water in the tank. It can explode. Uh, So you want to be careful with molten salts and make sure you know all of the safety precautions for working with them. Uh, the other way to use molten salts is in the low temperature range, meaning in quenching. So you can quench in a molten salts also at a much lower temperature, normally something like three to 600 degrees Fahrenheit, 300 to 600. And uh, that's done for a couple reasons. One is for mar quenching, also called mar tempering. Uh, so like we were discussing before, quenching is a very drastic stress-inducing process, and it can lead to warping and cracking, and w- especially with certain uh, complex shapes. So if you if you quench to just above where your martensite forms, because uh, that's when the stress really starts coming in, and you let that blade equalize, and then you pull it out and it air cools, there's a lot less stress induced into the steel, and therefore warping and cracking is less likely. The other way that, that you can do it is quench and hold at that temperature. So you might quench to 500 degrees Fahrenheit and hold there for a few hours, and you do that to form a phase called bainite. And bainite is kind of like a a tempered martensite. It's like it tempers as it's forming, kind of, is a way to think about it. Uh, bainite has a little bit different properties. Uh, it's often promoted as having much higher toughness than martensite. That's, that's bainite. Excellent. Well, that was – I tell you one thing about um, 
about what you're talking about, Dr. Thomas, and, and your book is you are very, you're explaining it in a very, very easy way. I'm very, very, uh, this is very, very interesting to me. Um, the next question comes from Buster Cooey. Here's a question for Laren. Looking for ways to improve my heat treatment methods for forge 10 series carbon steel, 1084, 15 and 20 chef knives. Besides the standard normalizing, quenching, and Parks 50 heat, preheat treated and tempered, what else should I improve in my heat treat? Interrupted quench, multi-quench, and why would these things help? Just diving into your book, thanks for writing it, and thanks to everyone on the podcast. Well, that's a really broad question. It's difficult to give a specific answer without more information. Uh, like you know, if he's, whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, if he's forging uh, or doing stock removal, that changes a lot of things. Uh, uh, one thing makers don't think about that often a lot is annealing. Oh, the way you anneal the steel is going to change how the final heat treatment response is. And that can be especially important if you're going back and forth between forging and stock removal. Like you might have some knife models that are stock removal and some that you forge. And if you forge it and do your own thermal cycling annealing, it's going to heat treat a lot differently than as it's annealed from the factory. And uh, so you need to be cognizant of that. And, you know, if you have stock removal blades that are coming out at 64 out of the quench and your forger coming at 66 and you're scratching your head as to why and if you need to compensate for this, it's probably related to the annealing process. Uh, the thermal cycling is also a big area of, of occasional misunderstanding, you know, what it is you're trying to accomplish. Uh, some people use too low a temperatures. Uh, a common method is to do a descending uh, thermal cycling, so you might heat it up to 1600 and air cool, and then 1550 and then air cool, and then 1500 and air cool. And a lot of those intermediate steps aren't really necessary. Uh, multiple quenching uh, has been promoted as a method for improving toughness. I haven't really seen it improve toughness in my experiments, uh, so I don't know if I recommend it you know, like a blanket recommendation. I don't recommend it for everything. Uh, so I would probably stick with a single quench to keep your life simpler. Um, so, I mean, it, it really depends on how he's doing it. If he's forging his blades, we could talk about how he's he's normalizing and thermocycling and annealing. Uh, if he's heat treating in a forge, uh, I'd say stop doing that and get an even heat kiln. Go to even hey, dash kiln hey, hey. Look at you. Look <laughs> so, at you. Uh, if, professional. <laughs> if he doesn't have a Rockwell hardness tester, I'd say definitely get one. Uh, that way you can really see, you know, is my heat treatment doing what it's supposed to do? Am I getting inconsistent hardness for some reason? Uh, yeah. So I, I think that's enough for now on that question. I don't have enough information to give specific recommendations. Okay, cool. So even heats are prescribed by the doctor. Just check it. Yeah, check I, it. I have an even heat LB22.5 used by PhD metallurgists. There we go. <laughs> That's good you, as it gets. It is. You mentioned uh, the differences between a forged knife and a stock removal knife. Mm -hmm. So let's say uh, two identical knives, um, they're finished identically. Would you be able to tell the difference in performance between the two? And this this is a question that we get asked a lot as well. But, you know, whether a forge knife is better than a stock removal knife and all the rest of it. And we, and we always say it, it depends how it's made. You can have some really shitty forge knives or you can have some really shitty stock removal knives. 
is would there be any difference in performance if they were heat treated in the same way? Yeah, I've also got a chapter on this in the book because uh, you know it's a an argument as old as custom knife making, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my take on it is that performance is usually not affected in forged knives, uh, and I've got some some explanations why. Uh, I'd say if you're forging, you should do it uh, for the benefits that forging provides. You know, if you want to make Damascus steel, you need to forge. If you want to do curved blades or integral bolsters, those are much easier to do with forging. Um, if you just like traditional methods of knife making, you enjoy using a hammer on an anvil, uh, or y you like recreating medieval methods of making knives, uh, those are all good reasons for forging. I think performance is an overrated reason for forging, and uh, it is much easier to screw up a knife with forging than it is to improve it. Hmm. Yeah. And if you're so using, we, should, we should do we should, a, we should do a read right now. a million times. <laughs> and if you're going to screw up your knife, you might as well use a Broadback Ironworks grinder, right? <laughs> <laughs> Broadback Ironworks. Is this a good time for a read? Go for it. All right. Broadbacks, go to Broadback Ironworks. Those guys are awesome. Bro, bro, uh, Ryan and uh, Vince do Broadback Ironworks. They make 2x72 grinders for knife makers by knife makers. It's incredibly versatile, intuitive, super long platen, and a, or adjustable work rest. Uh, you can pivot it to work, work it horizontal and vertically, and there's a lot of attachments and a lot of attachments in development. I talked to Ryan last week, and he's sending me something really, really cool that we'll be talking about in the future. You're constantly working on new things. You don't have to have a wrench to move to change things. Everything's with switches. Uh, the attachments, uh, all the attachments in the grinder comes in a flat rate box. So, you you know, shipping is included in the price. Uh, you can put it all together and you can go to broadbeckironworks.com and for put in Knife Talk 10, you get 10% off. So go to Broadback Ironworks. Guys are super great. They're making, they're really 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 trying to make knife making grinders for knife makers and other metal workers so broadbeck.ironworks.com knife talk 10 there we go and you know what if you're getting yourself a grinder you might as well get yourself combat abrasives make the world's best abrasive <laughs> belts for knife makers available in any size and at unbelievable prices Go take a look at combatabrasives.com and get 15% off with the promo code KNIFETALK15 do it now! The world's best knife-making grinders deserve the world's best abrasives. And we gotta have a, we gotta How have a, does that sound? We also have to have our <laughs> reads in. We need as much time with Laren as possible, so we gotta get all yeah. these reads in as possible. <laughs> Actually, I, I have an idea about, kind of kind of as a follow-up to that last question. So, uh, and I'm curious what Laren would think of me kind of walking through my heat treat schedule after forging a blade. And maybe that might, it might help... Uh, this the last question, uh, as well as help me actually, <laughs> possibly. This is a personal consultation. Yeah, you're yeah for. personal Life consultation on from the doctor. On, uh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you mind if we do that, Laren? Yeah, are you sure you don't want to talk about Rhino Wet first? Let, let's oh, give him uh. a break. We'll talk about Rhino Wet <laughs> later. Come on, man. You hold back a hair. He's after our job. <laughs> hey, you got it. It's yours. Knife talk. Uh, Laren talks. All right. So, yeah. Uh, so lately, I've been heat treat going through my uh, preheat treat and and final hardening as forged. Um, and uh, let's see. So after I'm done forging, I put the blade through three uh, 
kind of thermal cycles. Uh, and I just bring it up to about 1500. Uh, and then I, I park, I call it park quenching. So I'm only, I'm partially quenching. I'm not quenching all the way down to room temperature. I'm only quenching down to basically black. So around, uh, you know, a thousand, 1100 degrees or so. What, what steel is this, Morocco first? These, so this is a combination of uh, 10, 10 series and 15 and 20 that I use for my Damascus because almost everything I do is Damascus. And, and that's why I thought it would match up with this last question well. Um, so I, I do that three times. And on, on the third one, I full harden the blade. And then once it's down to where I can actually touch it, uh, I, I do a subcritical anneal at about 1250. Uh, for maybe 30 minutes and then let that come back down to room temperature again and then I ramp it up uh, to my austenizing temperature of 1500 uh, I quench in heat in in warmed parks 50 it's usually about uh, 90 degrees or so uh, and then from there um, I let it uh, I put it into the my even heat to temper so I'm curious what your thoughts and feedback are on kind of that schedule Okay, so your normalize is done from 1500 and then you quench to 1100? Yeah, just to, to pass through kind of like, yeah. Okay, so I would, I, I would increase your normalizing temperature up to about 1550. Um, okay. You can probably go even a touch higher because uh, what you're trying to do there is dissolve all of the, the carbide and perlite that's in the steel. Uh, okay. You get all of that that dissolved, and then you slow cool to get a nice even grain structure and perlite structure. Uh, so quenching is not not terrible, especially not for really high carbon stuff like like white steel or twenty six C three. But air cooling would be perfectly fine there, um, and then then you'll be sure that you're forming perlite. Uh, then you described a uh, what I call a temper anneal. So okay. subcritical anneal. Uh, uh, is a temper anneal, but a temper anneal is also different. So a subcritical anneal, you can heat up to something like 1250, 1350 Fahrenheit and hold there for a few hours. Uh, but if your steel is perlite after air cooling, that takes a really long time to spheridize. Um, so perlite is kind of like this uh, cabbage-looking structure. It's got all of these these lines of, of carbide and ferrite that alternate. Uh, where where when you anneal properly, you end up with spheridized carbides. They're literally uh, spherical uh, little particles. Uh, carbides are, are uh, a particle formed between carbon and another element, in this case, uh, iron. Uh, but with a temper anneal, you quench and form martensite. And uh, when you're doing the temper anneal, you're essentially just tempering at a really high temperature. And so it's forming new carbides and then growing them. Uh, tell it they're big enough that the steel is soft and easy to machine. Uh, so I don't have any problem with the temper anneal. That works great. Uh, and then you said you austenitize at 1500. That's a perfectly acceptable temperature for something like a 1084 or 15 and 20. Uh, you could go a little bit lower, like 1475 with okay. 1084. Um, if it's 1095, then it becomes pretty sensitive to that temperature. And the, the toughness goes down the hotter you are. Uh, you can okay. go down to even 1425 or 1450 with something like 1095. The only issue you run into is 1095 has such low hardenability uh, that getting it to fully harden, even in a fast oil like Parks 50, can be challenging. And going a little bit higher temperature 
uh, can give it higher hardenability, both from a little bit more manganese in solution, but also growing the grain a little bit actually helps you. 1095 is definitely a water hardening steel. 1084 is a little bit more of a fast oil hardening steel. I mean, they're, they seem very similar, but they harden differently. Uh, so, so those would be my recommendations. Sure. And then um, when you're talking about uh, austenitizing from a lower temperature, like 1425 or so, mm -hmm. um, do you also recommend a longer soak time once you reach that temperature? Uh, well, a lot of knife makers are afraid of soaking too long, especially forging bladesmiths for some reason. I think because you know refining grain size is so so ingrained in in forging bladesmiths, like you got to get that grain size fine. Uh, but it's better to do a longer soak time at a lower temperature than to try to nail this super short soak time that might not be soaked long enough. If that makes okay. sense, uh, so I, I'd say hold it for for ten minutes, and that's not going to hurt it. Uh, it's something a little bit higher alloy, like fifty two one hundred. Uh, Fifteen minutes is fine. Uh, so yeah, fourteen twenty five or fourteen fifty for ten minutes. Ten minutes is plenty of time. But some knife makers though, they'll say, oh no, that ten minutes that's so long. Your your grains are now gigantic. But no, ten minutes is not that long. And uh, you know, there's a time-temperature balance in austenitizing. So you, know, you can soak long enough at 1425 that it's equivalent to a 1475 for 5 or 10 minutes. Uh, sure. So, But it's more sensitive to temperature than it is to time. So soaking a little bit longer at a lower temperature is better than trying to get this super short soak time because you're afraid of grain growth. All right. Cool. Okay. Okay. I've got. I've got a question. A personal question too. Before we go on to, we'll give you a break for five minutes, and we'll talk about something <laughs> really stupid for a little bit. But um, <laughs> I, the way I do knives is slightly different to Morocco because mine is more based on volume. Where mm -hmm. Morocco will do these beautiful pieces that'll take a long time, and they're they're stunningly beautiful. M mine is a bit more sort of volume. So working with stainless, my biggest gripe is using foil. So foil wraps mm -hmm. um, before they for, for heat treating and so on. I've been hearing more and more people talk about these anti-scale compounds. Mm -hmm. Never heard one. Never, ne sorry, never used them. How do they stand? Could that remove um, having to use foil by, by coating them with a the compound? Um, and if so, could they then be oil quenched? Um, because we can remove them and put them straight into a quench as opposed to taking them out of the foil and putting them, you know, plate quenching and so on. What are the, are there advantages and are there any disadvantages to using a, a, a scale compound as opposed to a wrap? Yeah, no scale coating can, can be almost as good as foil. You probably can't hold it for as long as at that temperature as you can in foil, but austenitizing is not that long. And it'll probably be good enough. You'll want to do a little bit of experimenting. You know, see how much you have to grind away after the heat treatment to mm -hmm. get all of that decarb removed. Uh, but there are several different brands. Uh, I've got a partial list in my book. There's uh, ATP 641, Turco, No Scale 2000, Condorsol Z 1100. Uh, I've used Turco and I've used the ATP 641. They both seem to work pretty well. Uh, and they can work up to pretty high temperatures, too, like up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can use them on stainless, and, and they work fine. Uh, the disadvantages are that you have to let it uh, dry. So, you know, foil, you can wrap that foil on there and stick it in the oven a second later. Mm -hmm. But you've got to have some prep time. But doing it 
for volume like you, that might not be that big a deal. You know, you you coat them all before bed, and then then heat treat them the next day or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can go straight into oil or even water uh, with them. Uh, not many knife makers use water, of course, um, but that that can be a way to try to get a little bit extra hardness out of certain steels is to go straight into oil. Um, you know that that coating may very well break off uh, in the oil, especially like ATP 641, which is like a clay that forms. It it flakes off really easy once it hits the oil. So you might be dirtying up your oil some. That's another potential disadvantage. The Turco is more like a paint, so it doesn't come off quite as much. Uh, so yeah, you can go into oil. You can use them at pretty high temperature. It can replace foil uh, mostly, and uh, it's worth trying out. You know if you're unhappy with foil. Mm. Okay, cool, cool. So that's, yeah, next on my order list, I think. Jeff, do you have any personal questions whilst we got the doctor on the line? <laughs> oh, yeah, doctor, I have this problem for when, have I, you was got a, rid of the when I was a child. When I was a child, though. Um, you know, <clears throat> I um, I didn't think of any personal questions. <laughs> you have to give me a minute. But uh, Josh, <laughs> Josh Scott has a personal question. He says, Josh Scott, he's got a lot of personal questions. He says, I correct warps, high carbon steels, right out of the quench. Within 30 seconds to a minute, I find uh, there's a sweet spot where the steel is hardened, but still malleable enough to bend slightly without breaking. Can you talk about this? And then he writes, thanks, and I ordered your book yesterday. <laughs> well, since you ordered the book, I'll answer the question. There you go. Um, so, yeah, this is a commonly known thing. Uh, when you're when you're quenching your steel, like we discussed mark quenching earlier, you can quench to above the martensite start temperature. And uh, while it's still austenite, it's very ductile and easy to bend. And this is a common method used by even metallurgists, but also knife makers, uh, where you're trying to get it straight. Because once it's fully hardened, your your job of warp correcting is a lot more challenging. It can still be done, but it's just a lot more annoying. And if you're good and you're fast, then you can get that warp corrected while it's still pretty soft and ductile. Uh, when you hit the danger zone is when, when you're getting a lot of martensite in there as it's cooling down. The martensite is what's strong and hard and brittle, and the austenite is what is ductile. So the more martensite you're forming, the tougher it'll be the, to move and the, the closer you're going to get to snapping it on accident. Uh, but if you do an interrupted quench, meaning you quench not all the way to room temperature, so below the temperature at which those undesirable transformations form, like perlite and carbides or ferrite that soften your steel, get below that around 1,100 or 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit or so, and then you've got a window all the way down to almost room temperature where that steel is, is still ductile and easy to bend, and if you're quick, you can straighten your blade. So how much time, if you did quench down to just, you know, just below kind of like what the, the the perlite nose or whatever um how much time do you think that like you you can just keep it out of the oil for the rest of the time you think and and have a couple minutes to work on straightening it out or do you would you suggest going back into the oil to finish the hardening and once you pull that out of the oil uh, you're probably not gonna help anything by going back into it um, you know, a minute or two later, like everything's sure. already kind of happened at that point. You either got got down below the perlite nose or you didn't. Um, now, 
it does affect the steel to some extent. We were discussing uh, stabilization of retained austenite. You will have a little bit more retained austenite if you mar quench or, or do an interrupted quench uh, because that austenite uh, will be at higher temperature as the martensite is forming, and that will start stabilizing your austenite. Um, but it's probably not going to ruin anything. And if you're doing a cryo after, you're going to be transforming a lot of it anyway. Uh, so right. that is that is a viable method for for straightening blades out of the quench. Cool. Cool. Okay, let's give Laren a little break. It's like food for your ears. <laughs> okay, we've had another week of our KTP cook-along. Um, and Jeff was the winner last week. And he chose a sandwich as the as our, um, well, what, what we had to make this week. Open to massive interpretation. A sandwich could have been virtually anything. And we had we had fun making them. And we've had fun reading the comments, people guessing again who made who, uh, which dish rather. So Lauren's still on the show. So Lauren, did you take a look and did you manage to guess whose was whose? Uh, I was not trying to guess. Um, I definitely know who made the ice cream sandwich because you guys revealed that to me earlier. Um, so yes. You can't kick out with the bit, Dr. Lauren. You can't go with the bit. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. <laughs> But um, I, I did look at these sandwiches, and I have very strong opinions about which Ooh. one should win. Oh. Okay. Okay, hold that thought. That's hold good. That now thought. we got a bit. Now we got a Let bit. Let us reveal whose was whose. So the the first uh, picture submitted was a like a fried cheese sandwich. Mm. And that was... That was me. That was mine. The next one was a... Was a steak sandwich. Can we guess who that was? Jeffrey. And then the last one. There's no big surprise who the last one was, which was the the ice cream sandwich. Was Morocco's. So three completely, completely different dishes. And shall we find out who the winner was? So. Well, don't you think we should ask Dr. Laren who he thinks should have won? Okay. Okay. Shall we just go with the doctor's vote then? Yeah. Should, should we forget the listeners? Because quite clearly they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. Quite clearly. <laughs> you son of a bitch, you. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, the steak sandwich should be the winner. And, oh! and I, I will tell you why. Uh, this is a photograph competition. It, it is not a competition as to which tasted the best. It just isn't. You know, when, when people do recipes online, those those memes and stuff, uh, where they make dishes that are, are terrible and disgusting, but they look beautiful, everybody watches them because that's what it is. It's a visual medium. And uh, the steak sandwich looks the best. The, the ice cream sandwich just looks very beige. And uh, it's just... <laughs> It's just n not going to look appetizing. It, it probably tastes delicious. It just doesn't work for the photos. And then the cheese sandwich has got, like, some barbecue sauce in front of it or something. And, uh, Are you a doctor of food? <laughs> it, it's a very grainy photo, and just it, it, it's not going to work. So right. the steak sandwich is my there winner. There you go. Burn. Burn. Fucking good. We got to have him on more often. <laughs> Son of a bitch! That was a that was a, he's right. That's the answer. So anyway, let's go for the the audience vote now, shall we? Holy so shit. Um, I'm sweating. 
the, the fried cheese sandwich was 140 votes for yes. The steak sandwich had 351 votes for yes. And the ice cream sandwich had 122. So Jeff wins again, two weeks in a row. I did my best to put people off as well. I yeah, put Jeff's coffee yeah, in the back yeah. and I put a tomato. People know I don't like tomatoes, <laughs> right. but no, they guessed. They guessed it was Jeff's. Well, you can all blame one of our listeners, Chase Donace. I've been wanting to blast this kid for quite a while. He's a young kid. He torqued me off. He said he said something when we did the pizza episode. He's just you think that because Jeff went to culinary school, he would have won. It was it just for some reason I it drive you fucking triggered me and i'm like all right asshole i'm going full i don't care if you're 15 you have to, you torqued me off and now it's like i gotta win it was fun but i will say that if i went to any ice cream parlor i ever been to if banana ice cream is on the on the menu that's my number one choice number one all the time love it it did look incredible it did look very yeah very clean very appetizing looked really nice well really i say good. I will say, whenever I make a grilled cheese sandwich, I do do cheese on the outside as well as the inside. It's Gotta so be done. good. Yeah. Gotta be done. Gotta so, be done. So was it the barbecue sauce that lost her for me? Is that what it was? <laughs> <sighs> you people. You people. <laughs> you people. Oh, I got so many messages from these dudes, my friends, our friends from Philly. The Phil- Yeah, I know you're from uh, Pittsburgh. I actually, I almost did a... Uh, Pumanti Brothers special because uh, this is a uh, Dr. Laren is from uh, is from Pittsburgh, home of Pumanti Brothers, which they they're known for making sandwiches with coleslaw and French fries in the sandwich. And I got to mm-hmm. go there when I was in college once, and I was just like, "This is good." I was gonna try to spike the whole thing by uh, making it towards him, and <laughs> I was also thinking because um, Mareko was saying he's gonna do a Philly cheesesteak, and I thought what I should do is I should do a classic. Um, there's a real Philly steak. It's not a steak. It's roast pork with broccoli rabe. And I'm like, I don't think anyone in this, in our listeners like vegetables too much. So I wasn't going to do that. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, the Philly guys gave me a lot of fritz there. Like, so you're trying to make a cheesesteak. I'm like, it's not a cheesesteak. It's not a cheesesteak. I'm not making a cheesesteak. I just wanted to. And we don't even eat a lot of meat in this house. I had to pull out all the stops because of Chase. Chase's fault. Chase's fault. It's Chase's fault. People so Mareko won the first. Mareko, uh, sorry, then Jeff won the last two. I'm I'm the extremely sore loser here. Shall we give things a break for a while? Here's what I was thinking. I want you to be rested. I want you to be inspired. I want you to <laughs> give me no excuses. All the excuses started coming up. Oh, Americans don't have to vote. I don't want any excuses. I want you to be rested and excited and fired up. So in the fall, we're gonna bring this shit back and we're gonna do your specialty. What's your specialty, Craig? It's, it's your, you're the winner. It's your call. We're going to do your call. spaghetti bolognese or pasta bolognese, yeah. or spaghetti and meat sauce. Whatever Craig's masterpiece is, I want you to you gotta hire a sous chef, hire a photographer. You want to Photoshop your nuts <laughs> in the bowl. I don't even give a fuck. <laughs> I want to take it. I want to take it to your home. And I want to, I want to, that's what I want in the fall or the winter. And then I also was thinking our listeners should DM us. Their pasta bolognese, spaghetti and meat sauce, pasta meat sauce, and then we'll make a decision and we'll throw in a couple of the listeners as well to compete as well. How does that sound? Mm, yes. So DM us. Don't don't make them public. Yeah. yeah. So we can and, throw these. We can throw people off the scent right, of it. Yeah. Right, right. 
And that's what we're nice. going to do in the fall. We'll hold on to them. We'll make a decision on a couple of them. We'll throw them all in. And we're going to I'm going to take it to I'm going to take it to France. I'm going to take it all the way to Chateau Lockwood. We're going to okay. figure this out. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, bolognese, that's coming up. Um, but not for a little while. Yeah, we're going to take it. We're going to take a ride. I can't eat pasta at 90 degree temperature. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so do you cook much yourself, Lauren? Yeah, I do some cooking. I love kitchen knives. Hmm. What's, what's your speciality? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, my wife and I like to make Italian dishes because she is half Italian. Uh, my dad lived in let's not do let's not do bolognese then in the future <laughs> let's not do that <laughs> uh, my dad lived in japan for two years so we like to make some japanese dishes uh you know like gyoza or uh, yakisoba those kind of things nice so, so varied what kind of chef knives what do you look like or what do you look like what do you like in your chef knives uh, i like them to be really thin uh thin is number one uh when i was getting into kitchen knives like 15 years ago or so, uh, there were not that many American makers making them. And when they did, they just were so thick they could hardly cut anything. You know, it was like tactical folder makers trying to make kitchen knives and they, they didn't know how to make them. Uh, they're a lot better now. People know that they need to be thin uh, to cut well. Uh, you know, I like a pretty standard chef's knife, nothing too fancy, uh, you know, maybe a nine inch blade or something. Uh, the handle doesn't matter that much because, uh, you know, when you're choked up on the blade, it's just a, a couple fingers back there on the handle. So as long as it's comfy enough, then then it's good. And in general, I prefer stainless. Uh, I think there's some really good stainless steels out there. Um, AEBL makes a really good chef's knife. Um, stainless Damascus, that always looks good. Um, but, you know, you guys have some nice looking knives. K-tips, you like K-tips, you like... Western style, Eastern style. You have a preference in in food release. What do you What do you What do you look for? Uh, I like. What do a, you like? I like a more flat profile along the edge. Uh, I was around when K tips were starting to explode, so they still feel like a fad to me. Even though uh, you know they've been around for a while, they're very popular. So it, K tip doesn't necessarily put me off, but it's not something I really look for. Um, so probably a more more Japanese style profile with a flatter edge um i like both wah handles and western style handles mm. full tang hidden tang uh well since i like both wah and western style and I, I like i guess i have to like both there you go okay let's shall we get back to some questions sure. hey man can i ask you a question john robert Kraft as as dm'd us um, and again, people are doing this all via Instagram. Contact us via DM at Knife Talk on Instagram. It's that easy. There you go. So John Robert Kraft did exactly that. And this is, again, for Lawrence. So most research I see about edge retention concentrates on the hardness-toughness equation of the steels. He's interested in how softer steels that have an edge that can be maintained with a sharpening steel as opposed to a sharpening stone comparing longevity and which steels are best for lower hardness temper so basically would a higher carbon steel tempered down hold up better or a medium carbon steel hardened higher does that make sense yeah yeah there's a few okay. things we need to get into uh one is softer steel being easier to maintain uh, i do not necessarily agree with that uh if it's a a low wear resistant steel 
with a, a good, decent hardness to it, you know, 60 or 62 Rockwell or something, it is not going to be that challenging to sharpen. Uh, even for a novice, uh, even with someone with pretty simple sharpening stones, I just don't think it's that challenging. If it, if going down to 56 Rockwell makes or breaks the sharpenability, I think there's something else going on, like the technique needs to be improved. Uh, uh, mm. Softer steel can sometimes be more difficult to sharpen also because uh, the, the burrs can be difficult to remove when the, the steel is really gummy. And uh, it also, soft steel just doesn't sharpen up as well. The, the edges are not as crisp as something stronger. Uh, mm. so, so that's one, one element, is I would pick a lower wear-resistant steel and keep that hardness uh, to, to maintain your, your performance. Uh, also, the thinner the edges are, the lower your edge angle when you sharpen it, the better it's going to cut. And uh, to be able to maintain a fine edge like that, you need both strength and toughness, meaning you need some hardness to maintain that thin edge. You know, these uh, mass-produced chef's knives with like 52 Rockwell, 55 Rockwell stainless steels in them, they have thick, beefy edges on them. And that's for a few reasons. One is that uh, they're less likely to break, so they don't get returns. And another is that it needs it needs a beefy geometry for that soft steel because it can be prone to rolling and deformation at the edge. Mm. Uh, so I would prefer going harder and thinner uh, than softer and more robust. That's what she said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. This is a doctor here. He's looking at him laughing in the background. Yeah, he's so happy with himself. we got to bring him down to our level at times. Jeez you know, Louise. Jeez Louise, look at you. No, I've, I've never <laughs> laughed at a crass joke since I got my PhD. No, sh- nor should you. <laughs> nor should you, doctor. Nor should you. How dare you, Lockwood. Yeah, so if you want something that's easy to sharpen, uh, I would go hard and thin. Make sure that that knife cuts cuts like a laser. Uh, and for, for certain people that can't handle something that's a little more delicate, you can beef it up a little bit for them. But I wouldn't go softer. If you want it to be easy to sharpen, I would stick with lower wear-resistant steels. Um, 5200 or ABL would be good choices for something like that. And uh, you know, But there are other um, dulling mechanisms other than wear. So you, know, you can be getting chipping or rolling or even corrosion. And uh, those are all mechanisms you need to pay attention to. So it could be that for certain chef's knives, when they're really thin, you might be dealing more with chipping and rolling than you are with wear. Uh, so it depends on the type of knife you're making. You really want to test it with its its given task um, and push it hard and and really look at that edge and see, you know, am I getting microchipping? Uh, is it just dulling to slow wear? Um, is it corroding because I'm I'm working around salt water? And then you adjust your steel or heat treatment based on that uh, dulling mechanism. Okay. I, I had a, a crisis of confidence this week, actually, after something that I said last week on the show, which, which sort of round about what we're talking about at the moment. So we were mentioning our heat treat and hardness and so on. And I mentioned that I generally do a 52-100 blade or a 14C28 as a stainless. Mm-hmm. Um, I generally make the 52100 softer than the stainless. And the reason I gave for that was the I'm generally getting sort of professional chefs who would prefer a carbon steel blade as opposed to a stainless blade. And the stainless blades are, are normally going to households, so sort of home chefs, um, people who maybe just want a slightly better knife than they'd be able to buy in the stores, that kind of thing. So my my thinking behind that was stainless, um, 
a lot harder to to sharpen. So I'll make them hard from the from the get go. That's what she said. There we go. And the and the carbon steels, um, you know, a professional chef should really be able to sharpen a knife. Um, so they were slightly softer, and and I was surprised that, that that the other guys were surprised by that. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that are, because I, I had a huge sort of crisis of confidence earlier in the week, and I was and I was messaging a few people saying, "Am I doing it completely wrong? What what you know? What am I doing here?" Um, I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Well, chefs can run the gamut, you know, from from guys that really don't know how to care for a knife up to people that definitely do. You know, certain chefs you wouldn't even give a carbon steel knife to because they're going to leave it somewhere and it'll rest all over the place. Yes, so, yeah. So it might be hard uh, to make a blanket recommendation. You know, I haven't worked directly with that many chefs. I definitely haven't made a bunch of knives for chefs. Um, mm. So, you know, you might be able to make it somewhat customer-based. You know, if a, if a head chef is trying to buy knives for a bunch of knucklehead uh, underlings, you know, you might want to make something in stainless. Um, uh, but 52100 and 14C28N, they have pretty similar properties, really. Um, the 14C28N might be a little bit harder to sharpen, but it's not a super high wear-resistant steel. And I think you yeah. could go for a pretty similar hardness between those two and just kind of maintain a similar performance profile. Uh, now, if you are trying to target something for a specific customer, and like you know that that they they like to use a sharpening steel a lot on their knives, that that might affect what kind of heat treatment you want on there. Um, I haven't spent that much time on steels, but I know you know you're, they're really roughing up those edges on them, and so it might be mm -hmm. worth experimenting with what hardness level works best for that. Yeah, and what what do you use for sharpening at home? Do you use like a ceramic rod? What, what what's your favorite method? Uh, I use a few different things. Uh, a sharp maker can be pretty easy for quick touch-ups. I also have some uh, pretty basic oil and water stones. Uh, for my big catcher edge retention study, I used an Edge Pro with CBN stones uh, because I needed a method that gave me an exact edge angle every single time. And uh, I did like that for certain scenarios, but the jig setups can be pretty cumbersome, especially if you've got like an odd handle um, or even a thumb stud can get in your way. Uh, so some people see those jig setups for sharpening as a way to shortcut the learning of sharpening. And I feel like in some cases, the learning curve on those is just as bad, if not worse, than just learning to hand sharpen. Um, so, yeah, I, I've done a few different methods. I've got my preferences in different areas. Okay, cool, cool. Have we got any more questions, guys? I have a personal question. I finally thought about it. Uh, a cup yogurt. The doctor prescribes yogurt. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. So, <laughs> so a couple years ago, I had a panic attack. I had bought some uh, AEBL and Nitro V, and I heat treated the Nitro V, the the, the uh, AEBL in my even heat, and I did the prescribed. I don't remember what the the heat treatment uh, was, but I noticed that it, they were not getting hard. And, and, and I thought it was my oven. I did, maybe my, my, my coupler was wrong, but it got me off of EBL because I was just like, I can't, I can't, this is too much for me to, I have, I have mental problems. I can't, if something starts to stumble me, I like back the fuck off. If you were to do a simple heat treating recipe for AEBL, what would it be? Okay, so there, there's a, a couple things I think we should lay the groundwork for. Uh, one is uh, sometimes people give heat treatment recipes that are designed with cryo, 
and then people use that same recipe without cryo. And uh, I, it's perfectly fine if you want to heat treat without cryo, but the recipe ends up different. Uh, so your peak hardness for ABL will be somewhere around 1975 or 2000 degrees Fahrenheit with cryo. Without it, you're going to be over austenitizing and your hardness is going to be nose diving, like down to 56 or something. Uh, so you don't want to go any higher than about 1925 with ABL. If you're not using cryo. If you're not using cryo. Okay. And, 1925. Uh, you know, go into your freezer right after the quench. You'll, you'll get a tiny bump in hardness there. Uh, but one thing I recommend to everybody, if you have a hardness tester, you really should make your own steel data sheet. Uh, it doesn't take that long, so take some small coupons and, you know, do a range of austenitizing temperatures in like 25-degree jumps or something and uh, quench them out, you know, do a plate quench. So with ABL, you do 1900, 1925, 1950, 1975, hold them each for 15 minutes, plate quench them, go into your freezer or your cryo, whatever you have, and uh, measure the hardness on them, either as quenched or after like a 300 degree temper. And you can see where your your hardness is peaking out. Uh, you can see where it's starting to drop because you're getting too much retained austenite. You can see, oh, I'm shifted off of where that data sheet was. Maybe my oven's a little off. Maybe this specific composition on this bar is a little bit different. Uh, and you'll have really good confidence in what you're getting. Uh, and so, you know, you'll know right away, is there something wrong with my oven? Uh, do I need to be 25 degrees lower or higher than somebody is recommending? Or is just everything coming out at 50 RC and something bigger is is messed up? Either I'm not hardness testing right or the steel is bad or or whatever. Uh, so, you know, it can be very frustrating to people when someone gives them some steel and a recipe, they follow it, and it's just not working. Um, and it, it's even more frustrating if you don't have a hardness tester and you can't even tell for sure what the end hardness is. Um, but if you have a hardness tester, make your own data sheet um, by heat treating at a range of temperatures and see what you get. And you'll feel a lot more confident in your heat treatment. You Do you know of anybody, any companies around the country or any makers who potentially offer a hardness testing service? I know there are hardness testing services. I don't know what the best recommendation is of where to mm. go like is there one standard sure. company with locations everywhere that you can just go to and they'll test it um, i've seen people recommend just go to your local welding shop or or uh, you know a mechanic shop where you know they have a hardness tester for their uses and just ask you know will you run some tests on this um, you could also look for your local knife makers and ask hey can i go to your shop and test a set of coupons to see how my heat treatment's turning out you know there are ways to make it happen i know a hardness tester can get expensive you know they can be a thousand dollars plus even for the ones made in china uh, those ones aren't bad, by the way. They're they're just fine. They can work great after you get them dialed in. Um, but it can it can be a, a significant investment at at first. So yeah, looking around, talking to local knife makers or welding shops, stuff like that, y you can probably find someone with a hardness tester willing to test some things for you. Yeah, I used like a local metal shop for a couple of years before I got my own, um, and you know they're more than happy for people to come in and use a machine. Um, so yeah. I'm sure there's plenty nice. of others out there that would be happy for you to use theirs too. Especially considering some of the methods, and I, I have chisels from uh, Matt Parkinson, that he told me that they don't really work on AEBL and Nitro-V because of the carbides. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have tested the hardness chisels. Uh, I wasn't able to get really consistent results out of them. Um, maybe it's because I don't have a lot of practice with them, um, but... 
it could be frustrating to a newbie if they, you know, they've never tested the hardness of anything and now they've got these chisels, they've never used them before and they're trying to figure out what the hardness is. Um, to me, it was not, it was not easy with, without experience in trying to find the hardness. So um, I wouldn't say don't try the chisels, but if you expect it to just make everything easy and simple and now you know exactly what your hardness is, um, I don't know if it will do that. There you go. Okay, now is a good time to talk about RhinoWet. So, we all use RhinoWet. They make the world's best sandpaper for knife makers. Um, a bunch of different grits. Um, they save you time and they save you money. And we get ours from Texas Farrow Supply, texasfarrowsupply.com. If you use Knife Talk, is it Knife Talk 10? Yes. Knife Talk 10? Knife Talk 10, you'll get 10% off your full order. So that includes your RhinoWet. But they also do lots of other stuff there at Texas Fire Supply for knife makers. So they've got a special section for knife makers. So go take a look. TexasFireSupply.com. Have a look at the knife making equipment that they sell. And remember to use Knife Talk 10 and get 10% off your order. I'm looking at their page right now. They actually sell No Scale 2000. Ah, that is such a cool name as well. No Scale 2000. No Scale. Sounds like one of those late night shopping channel things. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. I think we, we've got one more question I can see here for Laren. And I think we're, it's a wrap. I think we're getting close well, to the end of the show. He can ask, does he have any questions about our show? Or is there anything he'd like to say about anything? Or you don't have to just bump, you know, interrogate. I feel like we've been interrogating him. <laughs> Possibly, yeah, <laughs> quite possibly. Um, let, let's take this one from Sam Bushby. Um, hi, or question for knife steel nerds. How do you anneal air hardening stainless steels? And he says here, such as 14C28N and Nitro V. He's asking about annealing those steels. Yeah, well, you're probably not going to be able to do it effectively without a furnace, uh, such as one made by Evenheat. Uh, just because the, the cooling someone's rates... Looking for a bigger one. Someone's looking for an oven. Someone's looking for an oven. That's fine. I understand. I know what you're going I'm looking for doing. my Even Heat sponsorship. So well, call me you. Even Heat. Spence, 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 you got his number. You got his number. Uh, so the annealing is pretty easy. Just you, you have to have a furnace and you have to dial it in. Uh, so ABL Nitro V, I don't believe any of the data sheets have a recommended heat treatment. Uh, but if you just pull up a 440C data sheet from Crucible, it'll have uh, a pretty generic stainless anneal in there. And that will work for ABL or 14C28. And it'll say something like heat up to 1600 or 1650 for a couple hours and then cool at 50 degrees per hour to a certain temperature. Uh, sometimes there's an alternate one where it'll say cool down to 1350 and hold there for four hours, something along those lines. So just follow the recommendations in a 440C data sheet. It should work fine. One thing I was interested in when I was reading your book was you were talking about how, because I always was worried about normalizing stainless, and what you had said is it's really hard to normalize stainless because a lot of air-quenched stainlesses will start to uh, turn the austenite, convert austenite into martensite in the normalizing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Why certain uh, stainlesses you would or you wouldn't normalize? Yeah, almost almost all high alloy and stainless steels, it is recommended that you do not normalize them. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is is that you just brought up, brought up Jeff, which is that it'll form martensite instead of perlite. And normally when you normalize, you're trying to cool it uh, semi-slow so that you're forming the soft perlite. Um, it's not, you know, stressing the steel a, a bunch or anything, forming that phase. Um, with martensite, it would be. 
And so you don't want to do it because it'll just increase your chances of cracking. Uh, the other thing is with low alloy steels like a 1095 or 52100 or 1084, um, you're heating it up hot enough that you're dissolving all of the carbide and then slow cooling to form perlite. And the reason why I told Moreco, be careful with going too low, is if you don't uh, dissolve all of the carbide, uh, for one, it could be on your grain boundaries and reduce your toughness. But also, if you have a lot of carbide left in the steel, it will not form perlite. It'll actually be more like an anneal. It'll just grow your existing carbides, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's not a normalize. And with stainless steels and high alloy steels, you're not going to dissolve all the carbide. Those carbides are there all the way up to the melting temperature of the steel. So you simply cannot dissolve all of them. So even if you cooled at a super slow rate, it would never form perlite. It would always grow your existing carbides, and, and it would be an anneal, not a normalize. So uh, you, you can't normalize it. I mean, you can heat it up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit and cool it in air, but it's not going to be normalizing. It, you're going to be hardening. So when you're forging a piece of stainless, when you're done forging, you go straight to heat treat? Uh, it would be better to give it a full anneal. Okay. So uh, okay. you know, do that 440C recommended anneal. Uh, that'll set it up for the hardening treatment. Um, you know, It'll give you a nice even microstructure with spheroidized carbides. And if you do the data sheet recommended anneal, it'll heat treat pretty similarly to how it does straight from the factory. Um, so yeah, I'd give it an anneal. That'll make it so you can drill it, grind it, and everything before your final heat treatment, and it'll harden similarly to the factory provided steel. There you go. So, so just to make sure I'm following you. So it sounds like the normalizing. Uh, I feel like most people uh, assume that normalizing is mostly just about grain refinement, mm -hmm. but it sounds like you're also talking about you know dissolving those carbides and freeing up the carbon the goal with that too is so i guess the secondary goal or a, 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 an additional goal with normalizing is to free up the carbon so you can just basically properly harden the blade in the first place right does that make sense yeah i i think um if you read read things from metallurgists about normalizing it will call it a grain refining step um but mm. i like to separate out those two things, normalizing and grain refining. Uh, normalizing, okay. you you want you're trying to normalize the steel, meaning you want a really even structure. So you know when you're when you're heating up and hammering the steel, you're you're growing the grain. Um, carbides are precipitating on grain boundaries. You're getting uneven grain structure, uneven carbide structure. And if you normalize it, you dissolve everything and let it reform. Um, you know, in a nice, even manner during air cooling. So you've got a consistent structure. And that's your number one goal of normalizing. Dissolve everything that's weird and get it to re-precipitate nice and evenly through the steel. And then if you want to do grain refining steps, you can do that after the normalize. So you might do a normalize from a high temperature, like 1650, just to make sure everything's dissolved and reformed. And then do your grain refining from a low temperature where those grains don't grow or they grow very slowly, you know, something like a 1450 Fahrenheit. Depends mm. on the steel. You can go as low as 1400 sure. with certain steels, maybe even lower if your soak time's long enough. Uh, so, you know, do your high temperature normalize, make sure everything's dissolved, and then do grain refining after at a low temperature. So earlier I was saying don't do intermediate steps because the intermediate steps don't accomplish either of those goals optimally. The first step, normalizing, you need high temperature to dissolve everything. Grain refining, you want lower temperature to keep the grain size small. An intermediate step doesn't accomplish either of those goals um, optimally. It's not going to ruin it, but it's not its not what you're trying to achieve, if, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Do I, Dr. I mean, Thomas, to me. 
if you can talk to our listeners, what's the big takeaway? What are the things that they're not, what is the big misstep with most young knife makers, especially what are we, what's the, what's the takeaway? What's the, what should they be focusing on and what should they be staying away from? Uh, there's a couple things. One is all of the focus being on heat treatment. Heat treatment is important, but it's not the number one controller of performance. If your heat treatment is good, it's going to have good performance. If your heat treatment is bad, it's going to be bad performance. But this talk about super heat treatments where it cuts twice as long or never breaks, I think is overblown. And uh, a major component of performance is going to be controlled by your edge geometry, especially, and then also by your steel selection. And so don't focus everything on heat treatment. Like you've got to have your your salt quenching, uh, super triple quench, triple tempered cryo treatment that'll make your knives outperform everyone else's. Uh, I think that that is a mistake. On the other end, people want to get away with pretty poor heat treating. They're heat treating in a forge. They have no idea what the temperatures are. They're overheating it, underheating it. They're getting inconsistent hardness. Uh, you know, they're only checking with a file. They have no idea what their end hardness is. Uh, and so if you get an even heat furnace from evenheat-kiln.com, oh, <laughs> then you'll have, you'll have much more consistent performance. Blatant. And, uh, you know, just it, inconsistency is going to be your, your main enemy heat treating in a forge. Adding a furnace, you'll be much more consistent. You can dial it in exactly how you want it and get the exact same performance every time. And really, it's about avoiding certain issues. You know, you're grinding away the decarb. You're not over austenitizing. You're not uh, tempering in the embrittlement range, in, which is around 500 degrees Fahrenheit or so. Um, so you're just avoiding common issues like that, and your heat treatment will be good. And there we have it. Dr. Laren Thomas, knife engineering, steel heat treating and geometry. Everybody, I have this book. I love this book. If it's 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 got so much information, you can read it a couple times. Definitely go buy this book. Go to Amazon. Help help this guy out. He's helping you out. It's a great great book. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and really quick, you also have a Patreon, too, where you're constantly putting new information, right? Yeah, so... That's where people can get articles first. Yeah, so KnifeStillNerds.com is where I post everything. Patreon, you get the articles a few days early. Um, Patreon is where you can donate uh, to me, and all of that money goes towards more experiments. You know, I'm buying steel. I'm grinding away lots of steel. I'm heat treating the steel, toughness testing, edge retention testing. It all costs money. My wife would not let me do it if that was all coming out of our personal bank account. Uh, you know, so my even heat, that was paid for with Patreon money. Uh, my grinder, uh, uh, I have a little impact tester. Uh, I, oh, I just ordered a salt pot furnace also from evenheat-kiln.com. Um, shameless. So shameless. <laughs> that is an outrage. This is a total outrage. So, yeah, Patreon, that money all goes towards more research where I, I'm going to discover fun things like, you know, can we os temper for Bayonite for better toughness uh, or not? And so with that sure. money, we can do more fun studies, more fun articles, and learn more great stuff about knife steel. It's kind of where, how cool. this book came to life, right? Yeah, without Patreon and the website, uh, there's the book would not be nearly as good as it is. Publishing regular articles has meant like I get constant feedback. You know, what about this? What about that? Why didn't you talk about this? What does this mean? Um, I didn't understand this. And so all of that tells me what to write about. I mean, I grew up with my dad and around knives, so I thought I knew 
you know, how stuff worked and what people cared about, but I learned a lot more uh, writing for the website, and I've been able to do some really fun stuff because of it, and the book is way better. Um, I considered doing a book before I started the website, and I've still got that outline. It's not nearly as good as what this book ended up being, and that's in large part due to all the support I've gotten from knife makers and knife fans. Awesome. Awesome. So are you... As a you know, as as a doctor of metallurgy, uh, do you still get those comments from people like we do saying, "Oh man, you're doing it all wrong. You're doing it all wrong," and they they try and tell you tell you how it should be done. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, sometimes. Okay, hold 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 that thought. Hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> we got beef. The doctor's got a beef. All right, so uh, knife makers that think you know everything and that I am young and inexperienced and don't know anything, uh, you know, show a little humility. Uh, I will also, if you have something to tell me that's interesting or you discovered something cool, I, I would be happy to hear about it. If you want to tell me that I'm dumb and don't know what I'm doing, then uh, go tell someone else. <laughs> when, when it comes to sandwich voting, you are hell dumb. <laughs> No I loved all the no sandwiches. Laughs. I was just giving no my opinion. That was a no laughs from that one, Craig. You not at all. <laughs> Blank space. Blank I liked your. You That's know, a good. We get. I mean, we got the. I mean, the all the cooking beefs. I mean, the the, the criticism oh, of the. I can't. Unbelievable. And with that said, I want you all to compete in this thing. You submit your 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 pasta dishes, and calling out Italy. All you motherfuckers out there telling me what I'm doing right or wrong, go wake up Nona, get her ass in the kitchen, and have her compete too. We'll beat your grandma's asses as well. <laughs> Philly, South Jersey, come on, big mouths. Get your shit in, get your shit squared away. Prove prove what you got. Prove what you got. And I want you to take all you Italians, get in there. Wake up grandma. Get her get her ass in the make her make her remove some balls and whatever whatever it takes. Fight in Damn talk. right. Okay, that's a show. Definitely a show. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Lauren, for joining us yeah, on the this show. This was yeah, awesome, I mean, guys. Got it. We get so many questions every every week about about steels and heat treating, and, and we try our best. But I mean, you're 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 the official. You know, you're, you're drawing a line into things. So we, I'm sure, we'd be redirecting people back to this show many times. Thank you so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. Yep. Thank and, you. And um, hopefully, we we'll speak again soon. Yeah. Can't wait. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.